Fighting Through Podcast, episode 93, 82nd Airborne, part 2, Letters from Sicily and Italy, more great unpublished history. Fred pulled a pin on a grenade to throw into the house, for some reason he paused. The field hospital was hell on earth, screaming, wounded men. 25 yards down the road, this tank flew out and onto the road, and it must have, must have bounced about two foot. A bomb landed near me and blew me about three feet off the ground. Welcome back to the Fighting Through podcast. I'm Paul Cheel, and this is part two of the 82nd Airborne family story of American Fred Thomas. We've got the story of Fred's Italy escapades, plus an impromptu telephone chat with British veteran Ken Cook, and a host of listeners' World War II family stories. And my gosh, we've got a preview of a special Green Howard's online exhibition on the Battle of Sicily. And we're going to hear a special extract from James Papalia's brand new book, The Secret Beach. So you're listening to episode 93, the 82nd Airborne Part 2. So if you haven't heard the 82nd Airborne Part 1 on episode 92, then I highly recommend you start off with episode 92. Now, here we are with Fred, just having completed his mission in Sicily, totally unscathed. Now they have to push on to Italy and do their bit to expose Hitler's so-called soft underbelly of Europe. And here's the background to the Italian mission from Wikipedia. There's a link in the show notes. Troopers from H Company, which was Fred's unit, with a group of rangers, made the initial landing in Italy on 9th of September 1943, on the Italian coast at Maiori. On 11th of September, the 3rd Battalion HQ and G and I Companies, along with the remainder of the 325th Combat Team, swerved south and landed on bloody Salerno Beach. On 1st of October, the 504 became the first infantry unit to enter Naples. Finally, the regiment was pulled back to Naples on 4th of January 44. The 504th took part in the Operation Shingle, and it involved an airborne assault into a sector behind the coastal town of Anzio, 28 miles south of Rome. For its outstanding performance, from 8th to the 12th of February 44, the battalion was presented one of the first presidential unit citations awarded in the European theatre. It was during this battle that the 504th acquired the nickname The Devils in Baggy Pants, taken from the following entry found in the diary of a German officer killed at Anzio. American parachutists, devils in baggy pants, are less than a hundred metres from my outpost line. I can't sleep at night. They pop up from nowhere, and we never know when or how they will strike next. It seems like those black-hearted devils are everywhere. 
On 23rd of March, 44, the 504th was pulled out of the beachhead and returned to Naples. Shortly thereafter, they boarded the Cape Town Castle and steamed to England. Dave Thomas is the son of 504 soldier Fred Thomas and his commentary on this goes as follows. Dad's company landed near the Salerno beachhead on September the 9th, 1943. They were supposed to be dropped near Rome, but the Italian generals betrayed their plans to the Germans, even after we'd already paid them off. At the last moment, they boarded LCI's landing craft infantry with the Rangers and landed at Maori before Operation Avalanche. Operation Avalanche was a mission to prevent the Germans from reaching the bridgehead near the port of Salerno in Italy. At this tunnel, his company received the Presidential Unit Citation for keeping the Hermann Goring Division reaching the Salerno beachhead for 10 days. What I learned from the townspeople of Agarola was that the Germans had rigged the tunnel with explosives to keep the Americans from reaching the Naples plain. The townspeople told me they'd sent several girls down to the tunnel to distract the Germans and to defuse the explosive without the Germans knowing. I was told the town used the explosives for the next 20 years for homemade fireworks. Wow. I was shocked by that one. It was also here that I believe my dad suffered his first case of combat fatigue. Holding their position at the tunnel was done by dispersing squads on the hills along the road leading to the tunnel entrance. Dad told me he was positioned near a bend in the road leading to the door. The Germans, the Hermann Göring Division, had a mechanised unit that spearheaded their advance to the tunnel. As the lead unit, a half-track, approached, a German officer stood up through the top turret, looking up the road to the tunnel entrance. Dad told me he hit the officer dead centre with his rifle, causing the Germans to halt. They couldn't turn around, so they called in artillery. 88s from the valley below. The Germans landed on their own positions and killed some of their soldiers. A young German was lying in the road, screaming from his wounds. That's when Dad dropped down the road and pulled him into a nearby ditch. He tried to stop his bleeding. This young soldier screamed for his mother while Dad tried to stop his bleeding. He died in minutes. That's when Dad told me he realised this war was a waste of life. He said, They were young guys just like us. They had families just like us. Devils in Baggy Pants I'm now going to read a passage from a book, uh, Devils in Baggy Pants, which is the combat record of the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment. The passage describes the Hill 1017 action, which was about taking a particular mountain position not far from Naples, where Fred and his comrades had hitherto been having a rest. Before we get to the action, 
side of things. I'm going to give you a little rundown of what this book says about Naples as the leading, because uh, it's just interesting to get a perspective on it. The entrance of the 504, the first to enter Naples, was a stirring one. The populace, hysterical with joy, shook hands, kissed the cheeks of surprised but not bashful Americans, threw flowers, and in short extended themselves to the utmost in their efforts to make sure that the newcomers considered themselves welcome. The city was a scene of ruin, starvation, and general wretchedness. Bombed buildings were to be seen everywhere, and the streets were littered with an accumulation of rubble, piled by months of bombing. The public utilities, water, gas, electricity, had each been carefully and systematically destroyed by the enemy on the eve of his departure from the city. Business was at a standstill, with the exception of an occasional barber who did, needless to say, a great trade. Looting was common, riots were in constant occurrence, and everywhere the American soldier was called upon by civilians to arbitrate and judge their street differences. For most Americans, this was a most difficult and irksome task, inasmuch as the language was foreign and the simultaneous pleadings and cajolings of the conflicting parties for a judgment would increase in intensity and dramatic quality until the confused soldier, in his inability to understand the accusations, or even have the faintest idea of the bone of contention, would throw up his hands in dismay to wash himself of the whole affair. Then the Italians would smile gently, and mutter with a little nod in the direction of the American, No capisco. These were happy days. Duty was light, wine, women and song were the order of the day, and with each passing week, Naples could be seen to progress another degree towards business and life as usual. Shops and cafes opened gradually in spite of the scars of war. Then came inflation. Everything doubled then tripled in price. Champagne, wine and cognac disappeared in favour of a new and more deadly beverage. Ten-minute cognac. <laughs> Pure medicinal alcohol with sugar and water added, and primed with a few drops of the essence of cognac, was bottled, labelled, aged and sold on the streets within a matter of minutes. Naples and its dubious pleasures had begun to pall on most men, and it was with a certain amount of enthusiasm that the news of a forthcoming mission was received. Advance information indicated that the mission involved the assaulting of precipitous mountain positions. A group of 30 men was dispatched to the 5th Army Mountain Climbing School near Naples to receive specialised training in cliff-scaling and mountain climbing. On October the 27th, 1943, the 504 combat team moved by truck to a bivouac area in the vicinity of Castello d'Alif. It became apparent at that time that the objective would not be the assault of any particular mountain position, but instead to make a general advance towards Isernia, 
about 25 miles due north from Alif. Two days later, the 504 launched an epic attack through the mountains of central Italy that was to carry them 22 miles ahead of the 5th Army on their left and the English Army on their right. Driving north towards Gallo in a battle that proved for the most part to be one of physical stamina interspersed with sharp patrol engagements, the 504 crossed the Volturno entered the rail and road centre of Isernia, cleared Colli, Maccia, Fornelli, Cerro and Rochetta, and 15 men from H and I companies doggedly fought their way through the minefields to reach the summit of Hill 1017, the 5th Army objective and key point of the entire sector. The next thing we know, uh, there's a letter on January the 12th from Fred to his family and he says I suppose the army has already notified you that I was wounded in action December the 11th this is the first letter I've tried to write since then I think they will let me try to walk soon shrapnel went through both my thighs I'm back in Africa now I spent Christmas on a hospital ship on my way back I was in a hospital in Italy before I came here. This is the first time I've ever been away from my company. I've been through every battle they've had without missing any until this last one. Don't worry about me because I'll be okay, Fred. And this is the story of how Fred, as told by David. It took me years to find out how Dad got wounded. Eventually... I found out he was wounded on December the 11th, 43, near Venafro, Italy, south of Colli al Vatuno. The Allies called it the Winter Line Offensive. The Germans were on top of the mountains, blocking Allied movements north to Monte Cassino. And this is what Fred said in a letter to his brother, Emmert. Dear Emmert, we started up a road to attack the Germans. It was a hard fight and they were throwing all the artillery and mortar which they had at us. We pushed them back through a pass. When we got in the pass, a bunch of jerry planes came over and dive-bombed and strafed us. A bomb landed near me and blew me about three feet off the ground. I got up and tried to help another man who was near me, but my legs just folded up under me. I knew I was hit, but didn't know it was so bad until I looked down and found I was just blood from the waist down. <laughs> Hope you are okay, Fred. And Dave adds, Several men were wounded and killed when they were bombed and strafed that day. Dad told me it was a cold and wet day. He said getting him to the field hospital near Venafro took a long time, but because it was cold, his bleeding was slowed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made it. He passed out from blood loss, and when he woke, a field army nurse named Mary Dare had saved his life by doing a direct blood transfusion from her to him. They'd run out of blood and plasma because of the number of wounded men. The field hospital was hell on earth, screaming wounded men, and the nurses were ankle-deep in mud blood and bandages. He never forgot that nurse, 
and stayed connected with her for years later. I've attached a photo of some of those nurses at Venafro. I recently found Mary's son and daughter, and we've been exchanging emails. Listen to that photograph of the nurses is in the show notes. So that was pretty much the end of Fred's war, and now we've got a few bits of commentary and stories from son Dave. And Dave said, There are so many more stories that I've uncovered, but the following has to be the most cherished. Dad was on an advanced patrol with his squad into German lines, October or early November 43. They approached a small mountain village called Colli al Volturno, where the Germans had set up some artillery to cover the American advance along the winter line. His squad had crossed the Volturno River, which was rain-swollen. Then they crawled through a minefield on the edges of the village and came across a small farmhouse. They approached from the rear of the house, and two Germans bolted out from the front door. They were quickly shot. As the squad leader, my dad came from the back of the house and pulled a pin on a grenade to throw it into the house. For some reason, he paused, and one of the guys said, Throw it, Sarge! And then he heard a baby cry, and reset the pin in that split second. He told the occupants in Italian to get out, Out came several mothers and some children. He never could explain why he hesitated. In his later years, he said that he felt a hand grab his wrist and would tear up and be silent. There was no reason for him to pause. They were wet and cold and had fought in some hard combat where they never gave a second thought to killing the enemy. When I contacted the mayor of Collie, He said they knew the story, but had more information on what had happened. When we visited in 1998, the town had a huge celebration and took us to the farmhouse. It was there that an old lady came out of the front door with her daughters, who were in their late fifties. She immediately went to my dad and kissed him. Then she asked where the other American boys were. My dad broke down in tears. Dave sent me a photo, which I've posted on the website. The caption is near Pompey, late September 43, on the way to Naples. My father is standing in the middle. He and one other are the only two who lived through the war. The other guys were killed in Holland when they crossed the Waal River near Nijmegen. That action was featured in the film A Bridge Too Far, based on the book written by Cornelius Ryan. So those are the guys the lady was asking about. The part of the story we didn't know was that the two Germans who had earlier exited the front door and got killed had been inside interrogating the women and children, shoving guns in their mouths and threatening to shoot the children. Evidently, the people of Collie had many relatives who lived in Pittsburgh, USA. The Germans suspected that they'd been giving information on their artillery locations to American forces. We realised 
that this old woman at the farmhouse in 1998 was the young mother who was with her children in 1943. She was probably in her 20s when the incident happened. The other ladies were her daughters, who in 1998 were in their 50s. The mayor told us that the Germans had put one of their men in American uniform, asking questions days prior to find out if the townspeople were divulging the German position information to the Allies. Later, November the 11th, H and I companies of the 504 took Hill 1017 above Collie after crawling through minefields and wiping out the German unit defending the valley below. Listener, if you want to know any more about that taking of Hill 1017, etc., etc., you'll have to read the book Devils in Baggy Pants. Dave, thank you so much for putting your dad's story and letters to me. Some great first-hand insights without a doubt. And to Dave's late dad, Fred, thank you for your service, sir. The Fighting Through podcast salutes you. And it's funny because between the recording of the previous episode and this one, (laughs) Dave sent me one more story he thought about. So I'm going to pick that up in the P.S., How's that for stuff being hot off the press? We've got some more feedback, family stories, war stuff coming along, Ken Cook interview, and a special feature from young James Papalia's book that's been published. Some more news on that. So plenty to stick around for. Here's Russell Gunning to kick the ball off. Um, Hi, Paul. I'm so glad I came across your podcast and I can't praise you enough for the content and presentation. I must admit to finding some of the stories quite emotional when people are killed, friends and fellow soldiers. You can almost feel the pain and loss and the tragedy of war. My mum and dad were both born in 1926, so were just 13 when war broke out. Dad joined the Home Guard when he was 16, the Hampstead Akak Battery. I have a fantastic group picture, about 70 men, and my dad looks the youngest by far. When he turned 18 in July 44, he joined the Royal Artillery. He was lucky as he wasn't deployed abroad until after the war had finished but did stints in Germany, Palestine and Egypt, nearly nine years in total. My mum was also a sergeant in the signals, although I'm not sure when she joined up. She also did service in Egypt after the war. And I've put Russell's photograph in the show notes. And he says, my dad's in the middle row, last man on the right, or should I say boy, as he was only 16 at the time. One other thing he told me was that he never fired the ak-ak in anger. Incredible. Dad's name was Henry Gunning and Mum's maiden name was Doris Hales. And Russell's given me some more photographs of his young granddad and great-granddad. Um, he says, my granddad and great-granddad both fought in World War One. Great-granddad 
James Gunning joined at 39 and served in transport on the Somme. Grandad Henry Gunning lied about his age and joined at 16 and subsequently fought on the Somme where he was blown up and nearly lost a leg. I only heard this in the last year of my dad's life but the story was they were going to take his leg but he begged them not to and fortunately his leg was saved. However, as a result of the injury, he did suffer with it for the rest of his life. Great-granddad lived to 83, granddad 81, and my dad to 89. So I'm hopeful. (laughs) My dad's birthday today. He would have been 97, so a good day to listen to a couple more episodes of Fighting Through. Russell Gunning, United States of America. And uh, Leo from the United States says, thanks for the awesome stories. And Sylvie, this was posted on the on my YouTube channel against the Kisses episode. And she says, hello from a French friend, little croissant and cappuccino icons. I love to hear the real BBC English accent. What a great podcast, my friend. Very well done. The war was hard. I think she's referring to Dominic Frisbee's BBC accent rather than mine. Uh, Shout out now for Sylvie's own French magazine YouTube channel, which is called Champagne Sylvie. It's all about French life, la France, les Français, tourism, visiter, la mode française, la gastronomie, l'agriculture, la viticulture... And who says French and English are two different languages? Take away Brexit politicians and the Norman Conquest and we're the same people who do love each other, really, don't we? So, thanks to Sylvie's French miscellaneous magazine channel, I now know the French for bread, grape and hello. And I also know the French for Calvados too, which is, of course, Calvados. Zut alors. Champagne Sylvie's YouTube channel is in the show notes, the link in the show notes. La Vie en France, it's called. Talking about Calvados, uh, just a bit of background with the help of Wikipedia. Calvados, in case you didn't know it by now, it's a type of brandy made from apples and it's named after the region of Normandy in France where it's produced. During World War One, Calvados was requisitioned by the French government as it was closer to the front lines than any other beverages of similar alcoholic content. However, the alcohol was not used to produce explosives, petrol or for medicinal purposes, with the exception of sedating soldiers during operations. So there was a fair base around during World War Two. And guess what? Someone's just sent me a story about Calvados, Lee Owen. Uh, He bought me a few Calvados through the Buy Me A Coffee banner on the website, and he said this. Great show, Paul. Both my grandfathers fought, but didn't talk about it much. My grandfather, Thomas Owen, joined the Navy in 1939, aged 15, having lied about his age, and his father, a World War I veteran, signed to say that he was older. And he did tell me a story about... Calvados. He was ashore somewhere in Normandy, 
and had a few too many Calvados waking up in the brig the following day with no idea what he did to get himself locked up there. He was a right character, and I would love to know the full story. Anyway, enjoy your Calvados and stay out of trouble, and keep up the good work, bud. And that's Lee Owen from the UK. Lee, many thanks for all of that. Great stuff. Positive feedback from several other people, including Jack Fritz in South Dakota, Virginia Miller in Phoenix, Arizona, and Will Killigan in the USA. Charles Parker, uh, the podcast reminds him of stories his uncle told about flying over the hump in Burma. Nathan wrote in and said, Good eye, mate. I'm loving every single episode, but I'm writing to ask you for your help. I'm chasing information about my great-grandfather who was in the British Air Force. I want to record both sides of my family's brave history, and my boys already know about my mother's side, being the brave Anzacs that took on the Japanese at Kokoda. But as far as my English father's granddads are concerned, it's just lost on me. Thanks for your time. Don Booth uh, has similarly written in with a request for information, but his uncle on his mother's side served with the 7th Battalion, the Green Howards, and was killed in action 18th of June 1944, not long after D-Day, of course. His name was Tommy Rowe from Manchester, and he was only 17. And Don says he's going to Normandy in June to visit the cemetery at Bayer. I did give Don uh, what information I had, which wasn't much. I did actually phone veteran Ken Cook to see if he could throw any light on the incident, but he couldn't, unfortunately. Don followed up uh, a few weeks after this first contact to say... Um, I managed to complete my trip and visit Bayer, where Tommy is buried, and the Normandy Monument at Vers-sur-Mer, Gold Beach, where his battalion, the 7th Green Howards, landed on D-Day. The monument is quite something. I also found Tommy's name on the memorial. I was in Normandy for ten days, and every day was full of things to see, including veterans. I met some on the ferry going over from Portsmouth and later in Normandy. Thanks again, Don. Don, I'm so pleased you found that Versumer Memorial. It is quite stunning and the Gold Beach Museum in that area is super too. I've covered that and more in episode 44 when I went on a battleground visit with the Green Howards. So uh, anybody interested, check that one out. Hi, my name's Nathan Checkitz from Adelaide in South Australia. First time I've ever written to a podcast and I'm absolutely loving it. Started two weeks ago, already up to episode 90. I've got a question for you regards to my pop. He was in the Dutch army. His name was Gert van den Brink. I've done a bit of research and found he had a son I never knew about, and was able to tell me that he served in the Dutch Marines in the Civil War in Indonesia, 1940. Then he was enslaved by the Germans and sent to work on a farm. Then after the war, he walked from Germany back to Holland as a free man. Unfortunately, that's all he knows. Said he saw things a young man should never see but I will still be doing more digging to find out what I can. If you're able to shed some light on it for me, thank you. Well, Nathan's now armed with the best advice I can give anyone 
uh, doing any research on a relative. Find out which army and regiment they were in, because that can open up so many more avenues for uh, for research. If you go to the research tab on my website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, I have posted loads of links to forums that can help you with your research. But first and foremost, get hold of their service records from the National Archives of the Country Concerned. Usually, full name and regiment helps enormously, though if their name is Wilmot Zachariah Higginsbottom, that might be all you need. Um, and these forums like www2talk.com are staffed by veterans and enthusiasts of all kinds, and they are usually extremely knowledgeable. Uh, and, th- th- you know, they can't give you the exact details about a particular relative, but they can point you in relevant directions. You know, you can look up various theatres of war and weaponry and uniforms and badges, etc., Returning to you, Nathan, with a grandfather in the Dutch Marines captured in Indonesia, that's a tricky one for me anyway. But get yourself, just get yourself all over Google and Wikipedia and gradually tease out all the history you can. I'm sure it exists. I actually do feel excited for you because uh, what might be waiting there for you to discover? There's a picture of Nathan's great-grandfather and his hat and badge on Fighting Through Podcast show notes, lest someone should be able to give him some ideas. Do you know, I've had so many Nathans uh, get in touch with me. I've got another Nathan Learmont from Manchester. Nathan, thank you very much for your positive feedback about the show. Stepping up a gear now, I've got a phone interview with Ken Cook. Uh, I had a random telephone call with veteran Ken Cook the other week. Ken comes from Yorkshire and landed on Gold Beach at the age of 18 with the 7th Green Howards. You'll remember that he featured in two full-length interviews in episodes 74 and 75. So this telephone call was partly a catch-up to see how the old boy was, but also to ask about Don Booth's relative Tommy Rowe. Unfortunately, Ken had no recollection of the incident, but boy, was I rewarded with a few more memories. I reckon Ken is 97, if my maths is correct. Wow, here goes. Ken, hi, it's Paul Shield. Paul, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Is it convenient to have a chat, Ken? Yeah. You don't do email, then? <laughs> no, it's all too complicated for me, Paul. Well, uh, you, were, you were handy with a Bren gun and a hand grenade and a, a Lee Enfield, so we can't... Uh, we can't fault you for just failing when it comes to computers. <laughs> I think no, no. In the final, in the final analysis, I know which I'd prefer to be in charge of if, if it came yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to doomsday. Anyway, um, I've got, got a few more questions to ask you, yeah. and, and if you, I don't know if you've thought of any more stories since we last spoke, but the, these questions might just trigger off one or two thoughts that. They're in a bit of a random order, really, but um, let's see where we get with them. Um, one or two of my podcast listeners did actually send their best regards to you. Oh, yeah. And, uh, very good watching that podcast, Dad. Oh, did you enjoy it? <laughs> yes, very much. Oh, good. I, you know, 
a lot came out of it. I don't know if you remembered stuff that you don't normally remember, but you weren't short of material by any stretch. Um, do you remember what you were doing when the war ended? Uh, I was, see, I was in hospital down south. Ah, you... Before I got demoked. Okay. Queen Elizabeth Hospital down, down south somewhere. Yeah. So you're actually in hospital when it, when it finished? When it, when it finished, yes. I, mean, I think it was in Surrey somewhere. We went into town, I think. We were just shouting and, you know, having a, having a drink. Having a few drinks and a sing-song. Yeah, sort of thing, you know. That's all I can remember of that. So you weren't in hospital bed as such, or...? Oh, no, no. We were in there waiting to get the mug. Oh, OK. We were there for about four or five days in that hospital. Yeah. And then uh, the doctor came round on the final day and said he was going to examine us for ready to pour him up. And that's when I went into his office, stripped off. Have I told you that? Is this when he asked you if you, if you could... Uh, ride a motorbike? If you could ride... <laughs> yeah, you did tell me that that's one. That's the one. Oh dear. Listener, I've just managed to retrieve the clip about the motorbike story from Ken's other episodes. Um, so I may as well share, share it with you just in case you can't remember what the story was about. Here goes. The doctor, after I've been there a couple of days, he came around and says, I've got to examine you regarding getting demoked. Yes. Anyway. Went in his office, stripped off, examined me. He said, when did he get wounded? I said, last July in Normandy. So he says, you should never have gone back. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, now you tell me, you know. Anyway, we chatted a bit longer. And he said, do you fancy riding a motorbike? I said, why? What do you want? He said, well, uh, we're short of dispatch riders. So I said, told you. get lost, I said, you know. <laughs> and he said, oh, you're okay, said, yeah, get oh, away oh, home. Dear. No, that was it. And that was the end of your war. Yeah. Have you ever ridden a motorbike since? No. No. And <laughs> not tried to ride a motorbike. No. It was his little joke, I think, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yes, yes. When I said we're short of dispatch riders. Yeah, <laughs> on, the, on the front line. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, we had quite a few stories of the dispatch riders. Uh, one of our Normandy vets, he was a dispatch rider, and they went down this road, and nearly bumped into a Tiger tank that was coming the other way. Yeah. And it, it flew over the fields, somehow. It's <laughs> it didn't go on the road, it went over the fields. Oh, to avoid it. Yeah. And then another time... Uh, we heard the story of a uh, dispatch rider riding along, and the Germans had put some uh, cable across the road. Yeah. At, at height, you know. Yeah. Like a thin cable wire. Yeah. Across the road. It took his head off. Oh, dear. Yeah. Was this so, during, this was during Normandy, during the... Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the motorcycles and the jeeps, then and, and small small cars 
they had like a, a piece of metal on the front of the vehicle that cut that wire when they went into it. That's when uh, they uh, heard about the chap that took his head off. Yeah. They said we well, would have to do something about that and to protect the dispatch riders and the jeep drivers, you know. Yes. Well, they put this up like a, a piece of uh, iron bar sort of thing in the front. Yeah. Sort of cut the wire as they came up against it. Yeah. I suppose the only the only uh, saving grace is he wouldn't have the guy who had his head chopped off. We wouldn't have known anything about it, would he? No, 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 no. It would have been a quick mercy. Yeah. But uh, oh, how horrible! It is, isn't it? Yeah. When we first heard about it, you know, it shook us up a lot. Did that? Uh, every time we went down the roads, we looked out for things like that. You know. Yeah. Like booby trap kind of things. Yeah. Did, um, it was it, because you would have been fighting in the Bocage, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I found out about the Bocage only last week? Did you? Yeah, well, I, I knew about the Bocage, but yeah, I yeah. hadn't quite known the detailed history, and apparently, when the, the land was cleared for farming centuries ago, yeah, yeah. It, it was covered in rocks and granite and all sorts. Yeah, yeah. And all, when they'd cleared all the land, they took all these rocks and used the rocks to make the walls. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then over years, of course, the trees and bushes and all the rest of it grew up integral to the walls and that, you know, that created the, the verge around yeah. the fields and the roads. Yeah. I mean, I knew that the Bocage was the, all these narrow country lanes, but I hadn't quite realised that they were comprised of the, all this rock. It was like walking down a tunnel, Paul. Was it? You know, the, the, the branches on both sides, they met in the middle, and it formed like a tunnel, and uh, the sides of the road were like a bank, and you, you had the trees on top of that bank forming the, the cars, like a tunnel yeah. effect. You know, we were in on, we were sat on the verge, not not being in in view of the Germans, like you know, we just sat on the on the sat on the verge at the base of a tree, and we heard this noise coming, and for a bit further about twenty five yards down the road, this tank flew out of the field and onto the road, and it, it must it must have bounced about two foot, and as he hit the road, it turned to. Go up the road, you know. Yeah. One of our, one of our tanks. I don't know whether Jerry had been chasing him or what, but it, it came out of that field like a bomb, you know. <laughs> it, it must have dropped about eight foot because oh. the the, uh, the verge, the bank, was about eight foot. Yeah. But it must have shook shook his crew up when he hit the, hit the road. The Germans were chasing him. I don't know, don't know whether it was a German tank chasing him or what. I see. But he, he flew up that road, you know. But he was in a hurry. Yeah. And did he start coming towards you or away from you? Well, he was away from us. Okay. Yeah. That must have been one heck of a clatter for the people inside. Oh, uh, yeah. The people inside. Gosh. <laughs> shook them up a bit. There was a, there was a, uh, a little episode in Dad's story when uh, some, some tanks came round a corner and uh, Dad and his 
comrades all started shooting at it and they they went into reverse and straight straight away yeah. you know turned back because they I guess they weren't sure of what armaments yeah, yeah. we had no no gosh Yes, yeah. Yeah. Blimey. Well, I did see, uh, I'm going across a field, and uh, this Australian officer stood up, and he was sighting along his rifle. He had a rifle, this officer. Yeah. Not a on a rifle. Yeah. And he, he, was, uh, he was looking towards the other side of the field. Yeah. On the other side of the field, there was a road, and I, 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 st- I stood with him, like, you know. Yeah. He said, you want to be away from here, he said, you know. Anyway, as I looked down towards the end of the field, it looked as though the, the whole hedge was moving, and there, there were two German tanks covered in camouflage. It looked as though the, the hedge was moving, you know. Crikey. They were that well camouflaged, German tanks. And what happened then? Did you did they not know you were there? But, uh, I don't think so, because they went... In a different, another direction. Yeah. We didn't see him anymore. I did read that somebody on the Allied side invented a device that they could attach to the front of one of our tanks with like, I think it was like prongs that yeah. they, they could attack the side of the bocage and, and lift, yeah, it, yeah. lift it up and create a, you know, create a gap through it. Create a gap through, yeah. Did you ever see that in operation? Yeah. Well, the, the Americans got that idea. They came up with that idea. And was it effective? They started fitting most of the tanks with that as well. They're like a... What do you call it today, yeah? Uh, forklift truck... Forklift truck type of thing, you but, know. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. 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 Gosh. Quite incredible. Needs must, eh? On inventions. Have you got any particular war souvenirs that your that your favourites? Something something you brought back with you, like a, I don't know. Dad brought his bayonet back from Dunkirk, for instance. No, I didn't have anything. Did you not? But I lost all my stuff. Yeah. All, all I brought back, I think, was my dog tags. Yeah. The playbook. Well, luckily they were attached to a, a body that was alive, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you had? Have you drunk any of your Guinness yet? Oh, yes. Did it perk you up? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Topped up the old iron filings in your veins, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah. A lot of the uh, sergeants and corporals decided to get rid of the Sten guns and get hold of a smizer. Yes. The Stens did. Mm. That's a bit like a Luger was the uh, contraband of choice, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, the Luger, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I told you about that uh, 
and a corporal jumped out of the wagon, didn't he? There was a place called Bockholt in Germany. It was absolutely flattened, you know. Yeah. And we were riding through on a, on a truck, and, a, and this corporal, he banged on the top of the truck uh, cabin to stop the, make the driver stop. Yeah. Anyway, he stopped, he jumped out, and there, there was a small crater over past. Yes. And he went to this crater, he reached in, and he pulled out a, a luger with, a, with the belt and the everything attached to it, you know. Yes. And somebody said, you, you, you tracker you, you know, you should have done that. It could have been booby trap sort of thing, you know. Absolutely, yes. But uh, he, he wasn't bothered, he just went and jumped out and got it. And, and got it. He was, that made his day, I think. He was sharp-eyed. Yeah, he was. It, I mean, it could have been booby trapped, couldn't it? Why? Why wouldn't? Why yeah, would somebody yeah. have left a, a luger in a in a in a hole in the ground if it wasn't booby trapped? Was in its holster and the belt with it, you know. Gosh, everything with it. You, know, you, you didn't tell me that story, you know. That's the first I've heard of that one. And there we shall leave it. Unfortunately, just at the end there, Ken's other phone rang and he had to pop off to answer a call. And uh, we did get a chance to catch up again. But uh, I know he's finished all his stories. We will try and get hold of him another time and see if we can eke any more little tales of uh, do and daring out of his memory banks. But for now, thank you very much indeed, Ken. Take care. Quick shout out, uh, if somewhat premature, for Christmas. Uh, an anonymous survey respondent on the website said, I just listened to the episode about Christmas. Now, how is it possible to induce a grown man to inexplicably fill up with emotion just by hearing a recording of Silent Night? If you haven't listened to the Christmas episodes yet, certainly do so by Christmas. There's a, a category off the menu on the website under the categories. And I'm actually working on the Christmas 2023 episode all the time. Uh, so if anyone has any ideas or anecdotes, please do send them in via the contact page on the website. Quick shout out for Krakow now. Um, Derek Whittle writes in he says have you been to krakow mate we went last week good plain museum mainly cold war stuff auschwitz of course and i went to a gun range and fired some guns from world war Two. bren gun lee enfield colt thompson and an ak-47 amazing fun very sobering the sounds and smells so that's Krakow, if you fancy a, a break somewhere. Over to some war stuff now, and kicking the ball rolling is young James Papalia. Now, anyone who's paid attention to the occasional spooky or what segment in this show can't help but have noticed young James' World War II story of falling down the proverbial rabbit hole and popping up in all sorts of strange World War II locations. Well, James has recently written more chapters, polished the story off, and only gone and published the book on Amazon. It's called The Secret Beach, A Kid's World War II Adventure. Copious links in the show notes. 
I've just finished reading James' book, and what a great little story, nay, history lesson, on all the key theatres of war. And there's some good photographs in it too. And here's the blurb from the book. When seven-year-old James walks down a dune in modern times to find a ball his sister threw, he finds something totally different. He finds some of the greatest battles and people of World War Two. Follow James as he visits Normandy Beach, Dunkirk, Iwo Jima and more as he travels the world and is dead smack in the middle of World War Two. The secret beach allows kids to learn about this important period of time and some of its heroes in a fun and educational way. Following a peer as he sees firsthand the heroics and bravery of the Allies as they fight to liberate the world from 1940 to 45. James, you did such a great job with all the twists and turns in your mysterious adventure. I'm so impressed with your knowledge at such a young age. Keep it up, young man. And James says he wants kids to read it so they learn about that generation. Hopefully, teachers in their classroom as well. And unbeknown to me, James has revealed his own family story in the book. Apparently, he got into history after learning about his great-grandfather Jim Mauro, a Korean war vet, and grandfather Kenneth Thomas, a Silver Star-decorated veteran of Vietnam and 25 years in the US Army. James loves watching war movies and reading war books and magazines, and he loves the Fighting Through podcast and has become pen pals with its host, the great Paul Cheel, through his dad Frank, of course. James has also made a friendship with Susan Eisenhower, the multi-talented granddaughter of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, and she's inspired him to continue to learn and write his thoughts. He's hopeful that kids around the world will read his book. So, if it's coming up to Christmas in your time zone, and if you want to get a youngster a nice little stocking filler to help them bump up on their history, and to enjoy a spooky adventure story at the same time, check out James' book, The Secret Beach, A Kid's World War II Adventure. Of course, you can check out chapters 1 and 2 in episodes 87 and 88, and I'm now going to read chapter 3. James is just recovering from the scary exploits on Omaha Beach and Dunkirk, where he's met Bill Cheel. He's already been in and out of foxholes, sand dunes, and deep soaking water. He's been fired on, bombed and shelled. What can possibly happen to him next? Let's find out after we've reminded ourselves where he got to in the last chapter. As I got on board the Dunkirk ship, the Stuka dive-bombers returned and began to fire. I jumped into the water. When I came to the surface, I was somewhere new. But where? Chapter 3. The Secret Escape. Meeting Marine Joseph Dimicelli at the Battle of Iwo Jima. I woke up, and there were no Stukas. I looked for my sisters, Ava and Emily, but they weren't there. I was on a landing craft boat. I heard the captain say, Three, two, one, lower the gate. I was somewhere new, but where? I didn't have much time to think, 
as I got knocked overboard and into the waters, but there was no gunfire, no yelling, and everyone was moving together towards a dark, sandy beach. I saw someone walking on the beach. He was an American Marine. I'd seen him before from pictures, but I could not figure out who he was, so I went to talk to him. It was oddly quiet, no gunfire, so I took the chance. Sir, where are we? What are we doing here? The American Marine looked at me and said, We're invading Iwo Jima. But why are you here, kid? I wish I knew, I said. What are we about to do? He said to me, See Mount Suribaki? We're going to take it and plant our flag on it. The quiet went away and the guns started firing like crazy. The American Marine grabbed me, put me in a foxhole. He looked at me and said, You're in a firefight, you got to stay down. I looked at him and said, This isn't my first foxhole, unfortunately. He looked confused, but returned fire to the angry Japanese soldiers. The Marine said, Stay here or follow, but we've got to move. So I followed him closely behind, and we ran into a jungle, and we came into another foxhole. The Marine said to me, Here, I made this food I've been saving. Have half in case we get separated. I thanked him. Thank you so much. By the way, what's your name and where are you from? He said to me, Joe DiMicelli from New Jersey. At that point, I recognised him from pictures in our family scrapbook. I could not believe my eyes. The Japanese started to attack and bomb us, so we scattered into the jungle. I lost Joe and was by myself for hours, hiding by a few trees. I got hungry and opened the food he'd given me. It was a salami sandwich. I could not believe my eyes or belly. I ate so much I fell asleep. Just then something loud woke me up. I looked around and was not in the jungle. I was on a ship. But where was I? If you want to learn more, then buy the book. There's 13 chapters, and they're all top secret. So if you tell anyone about them, make sure you tell them not to tell anyone. If you want to find out what happens in the next chapter this minute, check out the show notes for episode 93 on the Battle of Midway. But buy the book through Amazon from the links in the show notes and the website. That's The Secret Beach, a kid's World War II adventure by James Papalia. A bit more war stuff now. Uh, Green Howard's exhibition for anyone in the Yorkshire area or beyond. The Green Howard's Museum at Richmond currently has a free exhibition in the museum entrance, charting the story of the museum and its collection of the past 50 years and its place at the heart of the Richmond community. It's on right through to November 23 and will be moved online later in the year. Plus... Great Escapes, you needn't make it up. This Green Howard special exhibition, Great Escapes, explores a rich history of daring feats, escape and evasion, the kindness of strangers, 
personal sacrifice, split-second decision-making, fighting retreats and real-life survival by the skin of your teeth. Right through to December. Take advantage whilst it's pouring down. Oh, well, that's any day in Britain, then. And that's part of the paid entry fee. You can see it's online at greenhowards.org.uk. And there's more. Steve Erskine from the museum says, We've just launched our online Sicily exhibition, which does include some quotes from the Cough Cough, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg book. And listener, I can add that there are also some quotes from Alfred Blackburn's World War II memoir that we recently covered. And I can vouch for just how cracking that Sicily exhibition is. In fact, I'm going to include some of it in the PSs at the end of the show, so keep your ears peeled. But to whet your appetites now, I'm going to give you an initial reading of the narrative from the website. The heading is First Foot on Fortress Europe, the 1943 Sicily Landings. It's early 1943 and the tide is starting to turn against Germany and its allies. The Soviet armies have held and defeated the Germans at Stalingrad. The British and Americans are in the last stages of clearing the Axis forces from North Africa. Italian activity in the Mediterranean has all but ceased. Continual bombing by the RAF Bomber Command and the American 8th Air Force is slowly strangling German armaments production. Time to ramp up the pressure. Where should the Allies strike their next blow? The British and Americans do not see eye to eye. Various options are discussed, Sardinia, Greece and Corsica among them. Casablanca, early 1943. The Western Allies argue over the next step. The British favour landing in the Mediterranean. The Americans are strongly opposed, believing nothing should take resources away from planning the invasion of France. The British think an invasion of France before the spring of 1944 is simply not possible. But they have to attack somewhere. They cannot sit by doing nothing on land while the Russians are bearing the brunt of German attacks. Eventually, it's agreed. Sicily will be the first footstep into fortress Europe. A disinformation campaign is started, including the famous Operation Mincemeat, persuading the Germans to relocate troops from Sicily away to the Greek mainland and islands. Operation Husky is born. Invade Sicily? Agreed. Where exactly? Several key factors influence the choice. The landing area must be within range of fighter aircraft flying from Malta and North Africa, so they can offer protection to invading troops. There has to be a large enough port nearby, the capture of which would be able to take the supplies needed to keep the invasion moving. There have to be beaches of sufficient length and breadth to take the invasion force. The beaches must also be able to support heavy armoured vehicles. The Husky plan is a dog's breakfast. It breaks every common-sense rule of practical fighting. 19th of April 1943. General Bernard Law Montgomery expresses his opinion 
on the earliest versions of the plan to land British and American troops on Sicily, which advocated two separate landing locations. The main centres of civilization are by the sea, while many smaller towns nestle in the mountains. In view of the troubled history of the island, these latter tend to be in naturally strong positions, particularly the older ones, some of which are on veritable pinnacles of rock. Did I say I was just going to be doing a little bit of an intro here for the Green Howard stuff? Because, <laughs> because I'm going to give you a bit more, actually. There are such good passages to share with you from their Sicily website. So here goes some more, a, a little lucky dip, you might call it. This section of the exhibition is called Planning for Boots on the Beach. Formed in December 1942, the Combined Operations Pilotage Parties, COPP, is made up from men from the Royal Engineers, the Royal Marines and the sister unit of the SAS, the Special Boat Service, the SBS. COP operate in pairs. They are dropped offshore by submarine, then paddle ashore in canoes or kayaks to survey potential landing sites. They map hidden sandbanks on which landing craft may get stuck. They calculate the gradients of beaches to ensure men and vehicles could get across them. Take samples of sand or shingle to test for any water logging. Bore down through the beach to the bedrock to see if the ground would support tanks. Map exits from beaches and mark minefields and other beach defences. They return to the submarine at a prearranged point, assuming the submarine can get back through tides and enemy patrols, and return to base with the precious information. And there's a map on this part of the mission on the excellent Greenhowards Sicily Online exhibition. Training begins, landing from the sea against a defended shore. Training in assault landings, the loading of vehicles, and driving on and off ships into various landing craft, or through water onto beaches, climbing over the side of ships down into the landing craft in a rough sea, the strict order for the loading and sailing of landing craft and combined operations become part of the daily routine. In early June 43, a full-scale dress rehearsal for the landing takes place in the Gulf of Aqaba, the troops still do not know where they'll be going ashore or when. All maps and ground models have the names of villages and mountains as well as grid references removed. Their destination is revealed only once they set sail on the 5th of July 43. The Greenhowards 1st Battalion, veterans of a withdrawal from land to sea in Norway in 1940, are selected for the assault force striking from the sea to the shore at Avila in the early hours of 10th of July. The 6th and 7th battalions, forced to retreat from Dunkirk in 1940, and familiar with the Italian army due to more recent action in the western desert, will be part of the follow-up wave later the same day. This is a report from one soldier involved in the action. We boarded a landing craft and were taken about two miles down the gulf. 
Turning around, we made a dash for the coast at a good speed, and when we were about 100 yards from the beach, the ramp came down, and simulating the real thing, we jumped into waist-deep water and went as fast as we could, encouraged by our NCOs. As we were laden with kit and weapons, it was a little difficult to keep our feet. We charged up the beach shouting wildly and firing blank ammunition at an imaginary enemy. Private Bill Cheel, B Company, 6th Battalion, the Green Howards. This is a recollection from another soldier. On the morning of 10th of July, we were called about 05.30. I looked out and saw that the bay off Avila was just filled with ships of all sorts and sizes. My first thought was, well, if the Germans send their bombers over now, God help us. We washed, shaved and dressed, enjoyed a full cooked breakfast, followed by the inevitable cigarette, then just sat and waited until we were called to the landing craft. We climbed aboard and were lowered into the beautiful calm blue sea. On reaching shore, a big marine picked me up and carried me ashore, so I did not even have wet feet. That's recollections of J.R. Mumford, 7th Battalion, the Green Howards. And if you're a fan of Stan Hollis, a sign of things to come. Stanley Hollis served in the Merchant Navy before the war. As a company sergeant major for C Company of the 6th Battalion, the Green Howards. He was one of the force landing on the Sicilian beaches. On 18th of July 43, while holding a position on the railway line going north from Primasoli Bridge, the report goes as follows. C Company was taken by surprise and attacked by a strong enemy fighting patrol, some 50 men in strength, and a hand-to-hand struggle ensued. Two of the enemy were killed and one wounded and captured, while the remainder scattered and fled. The main body withdrew straight back up the railway line. CSM Hollis threw a grenade at one German, which hit him full on the chest. It didn't explode, but was sufficient to send him dashing down the railway line like a scalded cat. Regimental History, Singe A year later, Hollis would be part of the fighting force landing on the Normandy beaches. Here's another passage from the presentation. Fighting in North Africa had largely been across fast, flat, empty desert. In Sicily, the soldiers must assault and capture villages, many atop ridges, approached by steep climbs. Civilians are now involved. Seeing their villages devastated and their loved ones killed or wounded, the locals are initially resentful of these new invaders. Slowly, their distrust retreats. And this is from Alf Blackburn. As we approached one village, we saw one villager's chair outside his cottage. On looking closer, we could see that he'd placed his chair directly over one of the German mines. Then we saw the rest of the street. All the villagers had marked the position (laughs) of every mine so that we could safely pass. Alf Blackburn's 6th Battalion, the Green Howards. 
Left behind in Sicily, 146 Green Howard soldiers lost their lives during the 29 days they were on the island of Sicily. Some casualties were evacuated off the island and died later in hospitals in North Africa. And you can read the names of those who died there on the Green Howard's Sicily exhibition. Oh my gosh, if you wanted to see a masterclass of uh, how to create a, a museum exhibition online, this is it. It's, it's great. It's got maps, photographs, uh, summaries, stories, and it's just really well put together. So I would fully recommend you take a bit of time out to look at it. And there is a link in the show notes as usual. There's also a donate button on the Green Howard's website. So if you do enjoy its Sicily exhibition, please consider making a donation to help the museum to keep offering content like that in future. That would be great. A contribution to the War Stuff section uh, from Len Gale in Southam in Warwickshire, UK, who advises, In the Sunday Times... James May says that sell-by dates on tinned foods should be treated with a pinch of salt. My dad was a tank sergeant in the 8th Army in North Africa during the Second World War. Their rations were mostly tinned bully beef and hard tack biscuits. The lack of fresh vegetables caused scurvy, but the beef itself was edible and proof of May's theory. (laughs) because it was left over from the First World War. Oh, dear. Robin Jordan posted on the World War II Stories of Chaos and Courage Facebook page, link in the show notes. My mum kept her dad's World War I record secret until I found them online. And this is a communique from the District Comms Office in the 12th Naval District, and it's marked Restricted. And uh, Robin Jordan says about it, Thought you may find this as amusing as I have. Through the National Archives, I found this gem of some write-up of my grandpa, which he got in 1946. I never got to meet him, but I'm left with this cool, funny memory of him. And the report says, This man, a second-class petty officer, failed to have his locker ready for inspection on 1st of February 1946 although he had approximately one week advance notice that his locker was to be inspected. His clothing was adrift in the locker. Several articles of clothing were dirty, and stowage was so poor that inspection was an impossibility. When the inspecting officer approached this man, he didn't make any attempt to come to attention. And when the inspecting officer questioned him regarding failure to have a presentable locker, His answer was, what's wrong with it? In a manner that can be considered surly. John Neal added in that forum that my mum kept her dad's World War I records secret until I found them online. He was a stretcher bearer at Gallipoli and was docked a couple of weeks' pay for insolence. I wondered about the horrors he was going through and what prompted the insolence. I met a cousin who'd researched the family history. He said Grandpa had also signed up under a false name, so was drawing two wages. 
There was nothing in the war record about that, so I wonder if the pay being docked for insolence was actually for drawing two pays. Grandpa also had my uncle sign up underage for the Navy in World War II under a false name, and he was in the Navy some time before he was caught, but rejoined when old enough. At that time, my cousin was trying to find out if the same false names were used. Clearly, there were no ID checks to sign up for World War I, so I wonder how many others were drawing two wages. So that's the Facebook forum, World War II, WW2, Stories of Chaos and Courage, and there's a link in the show notes. This is another post on the WW2 Stories of Chaos and Courage Facebook page about Edward Teddy Sheehan, VC. Uh, There's a painting by Dale Marsh which hangs in the Australian War Memorial, Canberra. It depicts ordinary seaman Edward Teddy Sheehan, VC, RN. He was an 18-year-old Orlikum gunner on the Corvette HMAS Armidale. She was attacked by no less than 14 Japanese torpedo bombers on 1st of December 1942, off Timor. She was struck by two torpedoes and was sinking fast, and the crew were ordered to abandon ship. Instead, ordinary seaman Sheehan strapped himself to his gun and continued firing as she sank. He shot down two aircraft and some of his crewmates reported that continuing tracer fire could be seen from below the surface. He was awarded his VC following repeated petitions over time in 2020, and prior to that time he'd only been mentioned in dispatches. There's a link in the show notes, and there's about 48 comments on that link, so it's worth a read. Thank you so very much for your support and for making the time to listen to me. And please follow the show. Write like, rate, review or share the show howsoever it pleases you. Above all, do enjoy and please do hear me next time. And don't forget, if you are looking for a particular episode and increasingly I give you an episode number of interest, Hit the episode shortlist link in the top menu on the website, episode shortlist, to see a straight listing and you can just click on the the link in question and go directly to the episode number you want without having to page up and page down all the time. I've got some more PSs now, including a few extracts from the Green Howard's Sicily exhibition. But this one uh, was posted in WW2 Photographs by Doug Daniels. Um, There's a picture of it in the show notes. And if you can picture a little head appearing above a wall with a couple of sets of fingers just above it, that's Kilroy. Um, And it's all, all the background to it is that in World War II, American soldiers created a gag by graffitiing Kilroy was here everywhere across Europe. And even Hitler and Stalin investigated who Kilroy was, believing him to be a spy. It would later appear all over the world. And ladies and gentlemen, that was the world's first meme. <laughs> oh, we've got, we've got another World War II story of chaos and courage. 
Susie Hansen posted about the Dieppe raid. This is the story. We landed at 5.25am by my watch, which I glanced at as the ramp went down and as we raced up the beach. I remember thinking, how is it possible to surprise an enemy in broad daylight? Lance Corporal Johnny Crow was ahead of me and a little to the left as we jumped clear of some low barbed wire. And then directly in front of us was a wall with barbed wire entanglements on top. I saw Lance Corporal Crow thrust a Bangalore torpedo under the barbed wire on top of the wall and then drop back to wait for the explosion. But the Bangalore failed to explode. I made my way to the site of the wall where the sea had swept a convenient incline of shale which I climbed. Glancing to the left, I saw Johnny had climbed the wall in an attempt to find out why the bungalow had not exploded. When his head and shoulders were above the wall, he was thrown back as if he'd been kicked and fell onto the beach, shot through the chest. Something clattered on my helmet, and again I dropped back. After a time, there was a shout from some of the men. The Germans are going to attack with bayonets. Everybody fixed bayonets. I glanced over the top and shouted back to them. There's nobody there. You can unfix your bayonets. Where this panic idea came from, I will never know. And later on, this chap, as a POW, writes... The blindfold was immediately taken off and I was looking into the light of a torch held by a young-looking German in uniform who spoke perfect English and the questions came thick and fast. What is your name? Mavin, I said. Your rank and regiment? B3748, private. How many men were on this raid? I shook my head. When is the next raid taking place? I don't know, I said. Come now, we know this raid was only a feint, and the big invasion is coming this morning. Where? I shook my head. By his question, I knew it was in the early morning hours of the 20th of August. I became bold and said to him, I'm only allowed to give you my regiment number, rank and name. He nodded, but he came surly. His parting shot was... We knew where you were coming, you know. We knew some weeks ago. And that's by Private Wilfred Mavin, Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, Dieppe Raid, 1942. And that story was documented by uh, Battles and Beers. Every soldier has a story, and every story deserves to be told. This story is part of a much longer one. And it can be found in my book, What War Did to Us, on Amazon. There's a link in the show notes. To close the show now, uh, Cody Dunbar from Canada, who's written in saying, I'm a very big fan of the show. My grandfather didn't talk about the war much, so the stories you tell help me understand what he must have gone through. He was Robert Bob Dunbar, Calgary Highlanders, Alberta, Canada. Anyways, I really liked the instrumental music that's played at the end of your shows. Can you please let me know the artist? Well, Cody, thank you for writing in and for your comments. Uh, 
The closing music, the outro, is called In Victory. You can't typically find this on the likes of Amazon or Spotify. It's a fabulous track, though, I agree. It took me weeks to listen to and choose all my tracks, and they're all from a company called PremiumBeat.com. I've put a link to the actual track in the show notes. Um, Because you like it so much, Cody, uh, I'm going to give you a treat and play the whole thing to close the show. So... All it remains is for me to say, hey up, we, we've got another PS I forgot to tell you. Um, this was sent in by Dave Thomas following part one, the previous episode, and it's another story about his father, Fred Thomas, which I think you'll enjoy. When I was about 14, I was working for my dad during summer vacation. He owned a small car dealership in our small town. One afternoon, a drunk Yakima Indian, Native American, walked into our shop and asked me if Fred was around. I went to my dad's office and I asked if someone should throw him out. Angrily, my dad said no and told me to have the guy come into the office. He went in and dad had him sit down and shut his door. I noticed through the window that my dad greeted him warmly, pulled out his wallet and gave the Indian some money. After that, he walked out and I said, why did you give that old drunk Indian money? Well, I found out that was the wrong thing to say. Dad told me a story about this old drunk Indian. Shortly before he got wounded in Italy, he went down the mountain from their forward positions to pick up some new replacements. While waiting in the pouring rain for the trucks to arrive, he saw a tarp covering some paratroopers killed in action that day. Some of them were new replacements who didn't make it through the day and had new jump boots. Dad had the heel of his boot blown off several days before and was looking for a size 9 that would fit him. At that time, a truck rolled up with replacements and Dad noticed a man who looked like a Yakima Indian. He grew up on the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington where my grandparents leased farmland from the reservation. Dad said, Are you a Yakima? The guy said, Yeah, what's to you, Sarge? Dad told him to follow him up to the front, saying, Do what I say, and you might live. That was the drunk Indian that visited him at the dealership. Dad said, He was one of my guys, and don't ever call him a drunk old Indian. I never did again. (laughs) I just love that. I'm Paul Cheel saying... Bye-bye now.